All right, let's go Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, though it's going to take a little bit longer than normal uh, for me to actually get to the text today. Got a lot to talk about in the setup to all that. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word for a number of really amazing, wonderful things. But the best of all the amazing, wonderful things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know him. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by and filtered through the lens of knowing him, and if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, um, then the little logic problem says, put your nose in the scriptures and go chasing after him, and he will make himself known. All right, so it is week number six of our effort to walk through the book of Matthew together. We're just kind of barely sticking our toe in the water here. Uh, it's a longer series than what we typically uh, do around here, not or at least used to around here, uh, not because we don't preach through books of the Bible. We absolutely do, but Matthew is a much, much longer book than the ones we normally pick, um, and so it's going to take us a really, really long time to climb this really, really tall mountain. Uh, but at the same time, I think if we just keep plugging away, God will, will get us to the top of that mountain, and I think he'll show us his goodness in the process. Um, so uh, what do the uninitiated need to know about the gospel of Matthew? Well, it's the first of four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, right? retellings of the life and work of Jesus. So his origin, his public ministry, meaning his uh, signs and wonders and his authority teaching, but then also his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. All right? So all four gospel accounts all tell that exact same story with different points of emphasis. All right? And Matthew's effort is specifically targeted at a Jewish audience. All right? And so he's, he's speaking to an audience that's steeped in Jewish theology and Jewish history and Jewish presuppositions in the first century. And so to meet them where they are at, to explain it to them in a way that they are ab- able to hear and grab a hold of and trust and believe that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, right? Matthew frames his account by focusing on Jesus as the sinless long-awaited Jewish messianic king, right, who's coming into his kingdom. And so he's going to go out of his way, Matthew is, to uh, considerably more than the other three gospel writers. Uh, he's going to go out of his way to show that Jesus uh, both fulfills dozens of direct Old Testament prophecies about the, you know, the coming Messiah, but also even more indirect allusions to Israel's own history uh, that Jesus kind of relives, re-experiences, and even amplifies uh, by his own righteousness and obedience where Israel had failed. Right? It's a story being retold. And so not only does Matthew make frequent use of the phrase, and this was done or this was to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. Right? That's, that's a consistent uh, phrase that's thrown out in the book of Matthew. But also, there are countless moments where Matthew says something, and he says it in a specific way that causes a very biblically literate audience to go, oh, wait a minute, I think I've read something like that before. And it's because they had absolutely read something like that before. And what's interesting, what's interesting about that dynamic is that Matthew is pulling those moments from a much, much wider category of moments um, that his audience would have naturally kind of just associated with the Messiah. 
there's a long list of stuff, and maybe you know a lot of them, maybe you're familiar with it. There's a long list of stuff that every faithful Jew in the first century would have immediately connected to messianic promises. Things like God raising up another prophet uh, like Moses to deliver his people out of bondage. That was a promise they clung to and loved clinging to and they were so hopeful that God would eventually fulfill that promise. And there were other promises. Things like God uh, establishing the throne of this Messiah figure forever and that justice and righteousness would know no end under the reign of this messianic king. And and that promises that, that God would come to his own people and shepherd them forever in gentleness. Those are good promises, guys. But there's also a long list of promises that Matthew's audience either didn't have on their radar, or, I mean, we can, we can say the honest thing out loud, maybe intentionally downplayed because that wasn't what they wanted in their coming Messiah. We do this too, but they definitely did it. Um, promises like him being a suffering servant who would be despised and rejected by his own people when he did finally come to them. Promises like, by his stripes we are healed. It's easy to think about the Christ figure being the king who would put all things aright. That's a really easy promise to latch on to. But they prefer not to think too long about the whole, <laughs> we're the ones who would kill him part of the story. <laughs> kind of a downer. But lest you think that people trying to refine Jesus' image into a more palatable form is just a first century issue. We were blessed with a couple of Super Bowl commercials this last weekend. Um, maybe you saw them, maybe, maybe you were paying attention, maybe you weren't. Uh, but if you happen to frequent the friend groups and social media platforms that I frequent, there's been some discussion about it. Right. The He Gets Us campaign is not without its controversy. Some Christians are just excited that Jesus' name was mentioned in front of 120 million people. Like, look at that, that's an awesome thing, right? They don't even know that there's a public debate surrounding it. Some Christians love the ad campaign, absolutely adore it, because it highlights some things that in some ways, I'll be real honest, have been at times neglected by the Western church. That's true. Probably not as much as some people think. Probably not anywhere close as what some people think, but yeah, it is, it is true. It's been neglected at times. But there's also... There's also a lot of Christians who have very, very real critiques about the campaign because while it tells us something of who Jesus is, it's also incredibly careful to sidestep some some very other obvious things about who Jesus is. For instance, we're going to see next week that Jesus begins his public ministry in the exact same way that John the Baptist began his public ministry last week by being a preacher of repentance for saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I don't know the people behind the He Gets Us campaign. I, I've never met them. I don't, I don't know their motive. I don't know how they land on all of the, uh, the most important theological positions of orthodoxy, but just ask the question honestly. Does anyone at all think they're going to spend another $7 million at next year's uh, Super Bowl to show an incredibly creative ad campaign with a repent or perish message? <laughs> think that would be counterintuitive to their aims? What's, what's the over-under on them doing that one? Anybody think that they'll drop another seven mil and hire all the best and brightest ad folks in Christendom to to make a really, really catchy commercial that shows Jesus telling people that unless they pick up their cross and follow him, that they're not worthy of being his disciples? Is that one coming? The obvious answer is no. Of course not. That message would do the exact opposite of what they're hoping to accomplish in an ad campaign. Still 100% Jesus. I, I don't think... 
I don't think that it's because whoever's behind the campaign is on some kind of you know, conspiratorial mission to liberalize the church. They've, they've been accused of exactly that. I don't think that's what's going on. In fact, I think that's probably giving them too much credit. Um, now, I think what's happening is an all-too-familiar tale that dates all the way back to Matthew. Because of the brokenness inside of us, God's people consistently fail to either comprehend or even portray an unbroken Jesus in all of his true majesty. We get part of him, but we very rarely get all of him in our depictions. And so in an effort to grab a hold of something that feels you know, sensible to us or obvious to us, or maybe we try to you know, help his image just a little bit in some kind of way, we end up twisting him and maligning him into something that he's actually not. We're guilty of that all the time. But, but Jesus is always, and the word is always, bigger and more lovely and far more glorious than anything a sin-broken heart has ever tried to project upon him by landslide. And it doesn't matter how much money is spent on a commercial or how many eyeballs are on it. It doesn't matter what the theological leanings of the, the campaign makers are, what public and or hidden messages they're trying to bury in their effort. Even on our best day, all human storytellers will always end up uh, leaving us wanting whenever we're trying to tell an eternal, holy, beautiful story. We, we don't have the legs for it yet. I've been telling you the last couple of weeks that what I love most about the Gospel of Matthew is not that he makes no qualms at all about saying, oh, Jesus did this to fulfill what was promised, and he did this to fulfill what was promised. No, what I love about Matthew is that he just blows right through the gate when it comes to telling us and confirming that Jesus is both everything we've been promised he would be and also far more than we've ever dreamed he would be. He's both. He just blows away all of our silly little expectations about him. And so last week, Matthew hit the fast-forward button. He skipped ahead about 25 or so years in the timeline. We moved from Jesus as a baby to now Jesus as an adult. But before introducing the king as an adult, Matthew first introduces the king's herald, John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was a preacher of repentance out in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, there's there's an, an area just outside of Jerusalem. And as an external sign of an internal repentance, John baptized folks in the Jordan River. So he called them to repentance to make themselves right before the Lord. And as an external picture of that internal action, he dunked them in some water as a sign of new life, right? As a sign of that repentance. And so ergo John's nickname, John the Baptist. Like we're really smart people as Christians, right? Um, we, we spent a lot of time last week looking at Matthew's claim that John came in the spirit of Elijah. This is the one of whom it is written, a voice crying in the wilderness, right? And studying for this morning, uh, over this last week, I looked back on my notes from last Sunday, and I realized I said something that was wrong last week. Are you shocked? You caught it? Well, some of you are smarter than me. Okay, so... <laughs> uh, no, when, when talking about Malachi, the prophet Malachi, uh, I said that Elijah had died a few hundred years before that moment and that he, it was believed that Elijah would uh, come back from the dead. Literally, I said he, that he would be resurrected. The problem with that is that Elijah never died. I don't know if you caught that. I caught that. I didn't catch it until later. All right? um, so 2 Kings 2, uh, we're told that Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot. Aha, the little kid got it. All right. See, smarter than me. All right, so it's a standard Sunday school story, and I completely bombed on it. And so I got that wrong. Hope you'll forgive me. If you had any naive idea that I was perfect, just wait a little bit. All right, so, so what I should have said 
What I should have said last week was that Malachi was written a couple hundred years after Elijah was gone, not dead, and that it was believed that Elijah would physically return to the earth as the forerunner of the Messiah. So nothing changes. I would just look like an idiot. All right, so, but um, I got that wrong. So, but y'all, y'all ready to look at the next part of the story? It's time for, the, for King Jesus to finally step onto the scene. It's week number six of a series, and we haven't heard Jesus talk yet. So maybe, uh, let's change that today. Verse 13. Chapter 3. Verse 13, i got to get there myself. All right. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. I'm going to call time out there. So Matthew opens up his, this next little section with the word then. All right? And sometimes, oftentimes in the English language when we use the word then, we're talking about something that happens in immediate sequential order. But that's not what's happening here. This is more of a vague idea of then. All right? So uh, in the general time period of John hanging out in the Judean wilderness baptizing folks, sometime after John starts driving, drawing a crowd and even telling off the Pharisees and the Sadducees within that crowd, preventing them from being baptized. We're told that Jesus catches up with John and he wants to be baptized too, all right? Which is interesting for at least two reasons, all right? For starters, Jesus lives in a region away from where John is at. He lives in the region of Galilee at this time period, which is not an insignificant distance away from here. It's like roughly 70 miles, all right? And so in a walking culture, you don't accidentally end up 70 miles away from home. There's got to be some intentionality in that effort. And so what we're seeing here is intentional movement where there had been no movement before. Right? Yes, the first couple of years of Jesus' life were pretty chaotic, but once the family settled in Galilee, they were settled. Jesus grows up in obscurity. Nobody knows anything about him. We've got one solitary story in Luke of a 12-year-old Jesus traveling with his family to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And outside, um, he gets separated from the group uh, on their way back home. And they're all looking for him. And they find him in the synagogue sitting there uh, uh, listening to the teachers and asking questions. And we're told that everyone, all the teachers were amazed at his understanding and questions and answers. But that's the only story we have uh, between Jesus you know, as a, as a toddler and Jesus as a grown-up. One story. Outside of that one story, we've got nothing. No record of Jesus growing up, working alongside his stepdad, uh, Joseph. No record of his awkward teen years playing out. No record of his, you know, how he interacted with his uh, half-brothers and sisters. Nothing. Just a quiet life, tucked away in a tiny Galilean village called Nazareth. But here... Here in Matthew 3, we see Jesus begin to travel around and assert himself. In other words, the Messiah is on the move. He hasn't gathered any disciples yet. He hasn't worked any miracles, but there's movement. And that movement means that the time of obscurity has come to an end. Jesus is now beginning to step into his messianic vocation. He's coming to do what he was always been promised to do. It's finally time to do it. But as big a deal as that is, and it's a big deal, but there's a second far more massive thing about Jesus coming to John to be baptized. All right, last week we talked about what John was actually doing when dunking people in the water. The entire reason, like the entire reason that John was dunking people in the water was because it served as an external picture uh, that symbolized and memorialized an internal repentance from sin. 
Right? They were getting themselves right with the Lord. John's whole job was about making a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. And that preparation was 100% about calling Israel, God's covenant people, to make themselves right through personal repentance of personal sin. And some of you who have been church for a while are starting to do the math and asking questions and putting pieces together. You're asking the question, if John's baptism was for repentance of sin, what was Jesus repenting of? Like, what do you do with that? And the answer is absolutely nothing. At least not for himself. Jesus had no sin. And therefore he had nothing to repent of. And because there was nothing to repent of, there's no need to participate in a picture that models repentance. So why is he there? Maybe you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity. You're wondering, well, is it even really true that Jesus was sinless? The answer is emphatically yes. Um, Jesus makes dozens of claims all throughout the gospel accounts to be perfectly obedient to the Father. If you're interested in looking up one, John 8, 29 is probably the best one of that. He openly asks his enemies if they've got any charge to bring against him, and nobody can find a charge to bring against him. you got explicit claims from other New Testament writers uh, about Jesus, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. In him there is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In in addition to all those explicit claims in the Bible, we've also got incredibly massive theological realities that actually hang directly upon whether or not Jesus was or was not sinless. In other words, without the sinlessness of Jesus, the gospel falls apart. For one, Jesus' own claim to lordship. If Jesus is no better than you and me, he has no right to reign over you and me. But secondly, Jesus' ability to die on our behalf. If he's not sinless, then he would deserve to die for his sin, and he couldn't stand as a substitute for you and me. The perfect righteousness of Jesus is declared, and it is inferred, and it is foundational to the very core and structure of Christianity. Full stop. There is no Christianity without it. And so why in the world is Jesus showing up in the wilderness on purpose, 70 miles away, To ask John to be dunked in the water is a sign of repentance. And what's more, what does the wild-eyed prophet calling Israel to repentance think of Jesus showing up? Well, we're told in verse 14. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? All right, so a lot of ink has been spilled over trying to explain this verse and how it harmonizes with the other three accounts, uh, the gospel accounts, Um, so especially the gospel of John. Uh, And if you didn't know, uh, the the gospel of John was written by the apostle John, not John the Baptist. They're different dudes, all right? So all four gospels tell the story of Jesus's baptism. Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke all tell it uh, in the present tense, all right? They're actively telling the story, but John seems to be telling telling the story in a past tense. John the Baptist is reporting back on how how the baptism of Jesus occurred to some people that he's talking to. And so why is that important? Uh, Because in John's account, that's happening in John 1, John the Baptist says that it wasn't until after Jesus came up out of the water that he realized he was the Messiah. you got to do something with that. He comes up out of the water, witnesses everything that we're about to read, and John is then convinced, according to John the Baptist's own words in John 1. 
And so here in Matthew, we're just before that moment. He hasn't come up out of the water yet. He hasn't even gone into the water, and John's already protesting. No, 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 you shouldn't be here. So what exactly, what exactly does John think and believe about Jesus right now? And the best explanation I can think of is that while John is still putting pieces together concerning Jesus' messiahship, he already knows and trusts Jesus' character. He knows that Jesus has nothing to confess and repent of. In fact, as Jesus steps into the water, we're told that John tries to stop him. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa you, you, you should not be here. If anything, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. The Greek here, Matthew has, uses two different words for need. He just smashes them together as a compound word. Uh, why? It's because I think he's emphasizing that just how undone John is by Jesus' action. It's almost like a stutter. He emphasizes his point by using another word for need. In John's mind, it isn't right that a sinless Jesus would be participating in an, in an action of repentance. He doesn't belong there. And so again, why is Jesus even there? Well, Jesus gives us an explicit answer in verse 15. Look at it. It says, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. So hey everybody, say hello to the very first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Week six into this, and we finally got into something that Jesus is actually, you know, actively involved in. Yay! All right. So, I've been telling y'all for weeks that Matthew's structure is going to spend a lot of time letting the king speak. Right? And at the very, very first words out of the king's mouth are completely upside down from what you would expect the, like, any other king to say. John, uh, Jesus doesn't correct John here. He doesn't say, well, thank you for your kind words, but you, you don't know my heart. There really is much that I do need to repent of and bring myself into the line of the Father. He doesn't say, hey, I've actually got all kinds of dark places that you've never plumbed and, and you don't know who I really am. I do need to repent. That's not what he says. He says, let it be so now. In other words, you're absolutely right, but there's a special reason why I should do this. That's what he says. And we don't have to speculate what that reason is because Jesus tells us it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So, so what does he mean by that? Well, this is where you get to learn some more theology this morning. I said a moment ago that Jesus' perfect righteousness was necessary for our salvation. Let me take it the next level down. Theologians often divide Jesus' perfect righteousness into two smaller categories, right? Uh, the first one is the one that we're all kind of the most familiar with. It seems natural to us. Jesus has a perfect moral righteousness. In other words, in action, thought, and motive, Jesus fulfills everything that God commands of his people, period. But the second category is that Jesus has a perfect mediatorial righteousness, Meaning that in action, thought, and motive, Jesus fulfills every special command that God placed upon him as the mediator of his people. The one who bridges the divide between sinful man and a holy and righteous God, Jesus uniquely stands in that gap as perfectly righteous as well. And so, now that you're all talented and incredibly educated theologians, how do we understand Jesus showing up and being ready to be dunked in the water? What's he doing here? Well, the righteousness he's talking about is not a fulfillment of some law he hasn't been obedient to yet. 
through baptism, Jesus is acting in obedience as mediator. He's placing himself in the position of his people. The wild-eyed prophet in the woods, the one who has come in the spirit of Elijah, is calling Israel to repentance. And now the king who has come to retell Israel's story is binding himself to his people and responding to that call with every ounce of the righteousness and obedience that that is deserved by it, that's required of it. And again, Old Testament literacy is so incredibly important for rightly understanding Matthew um, because this is not a new posture. This is a repeated story in God's people. Daniel, a righteous man among God's people. Judah is in exile in Babylon in chapter 9. We're told that Darius is ascending to the throne. We're told that Daniel covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, and he fasts and he prays and he repents of sin on behalf of Israel, on behalf of Judah, the nation. And that doesn't mean that Daniel was, was sinless, far from it. Not even close. He was a shadow of a greater and more perfect uh, mediator to come. That shadow pointed forward to something important and necessary. It was a a shadow that God chose to repeat as well. Because Nehemiah did the exact same thing. In Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah is in a position of relative power and comfort in in Babylon slash Persia. He's a cupbearer of the king. He's got some... He's got some creature comforts hanging out where he's hanging out. Uh, But he hears the report come back to him uh, that Jerusalem is in ruins and those, uh, the remnant that was left in the land, that they're struggling with all kinds of things. And so what does he do? He hits his knees and he prays. And so in Nehemiah 1, verse 6, it says this, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So compared to all of his neighbors, Nehemiah was a boy scout. He was doing well. And he immediately understood that as a nation, Judah needed to repent. And that's exactly what he did on their behalf. Again, not sinless. Greater and more perfect mediator to come, but he acted with resolve to be for his people exactly what his people needed most. And so whether Daniel or Nehemiah brought you know, a normal amount of sin to the pile or, they, or less than average amount of sin to the pile, doesn't matter. They identified themselves with God's people in their greatest need and said, I will act on their behalf. And so a sinless mediator, Jesus steps onto the scene. The shadow finally gives way to the form. And even though Jesus is not responsible for even a single ounce of the sin of God's people, he makes himself responsible for it. The king of the Jews hears the call for repentance to his kingdom and he answers that call on behalf of his kingdom. You're not wrong, John, but let it be so for now because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I need to do this, not for me, but for you and for us. And so the end of verse 15 says that John consented. And look what happens next. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, 
a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All right, so there's a lot going on here. All right, um, and, and take a piece at a time. Matt, Matthew says, Matthew says that as soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, some crazy stuff starts to happen. And I mean, really crazy stuff. The heavens are opened up. The Holy Spirit descends down and rests upon Jesus. Uh, and a voice of the Father is heard from heaven. Like, I, I don't know how long you've been in church. I don't think it matters how long you've been in church. You probably got some questions after reading that. I've got some questions after reading that. Um, you're, you're not alone. There's a good bit of dis- a debate surrounding everything that just went on. Mark and Luke Mark and Luke both record uh, this moment as the Father speaking directly to Jesus, directly to the Son. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All right? Where Matthew here, we just read, says, this is my beloved Son. Like I mentioned earlier, um, John's account is John the Baptist retelling the story to others, some of his followers, uh, after the fact. John mentions uh, the Spirit descending down, but he doesn't say anything at all about hearing the voice. And so that, that raises the question, did John even hear it? Because, I mean, that's a part of the story you're going to retell if that was a part of the story you were in on, right? So we don't know. Of course, if John didn't hear it, then you have to wonder, what about the crowd that was standing there? Did they hear it? It's possible that they neither saw nor heard anything. We don't know. We're not explicitly told in any of the four gospel accounts. And so we don't know exactly who saw and or heard what. But the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all report that the heavens were torn open. Now, that's probably poetic language, but regardless of what it's poetic for, that's awesome. Like, I don't know what that looks like. I'm sure it's amazing. At the very least, it gives confirmation that this is divine action rather than something less than that. That's made even more clear because all four Gospels report that the Holy Spirit descended down like a dove. Now, it's important to note that none of them, uh, that's not the same thing as saying that the Spirit descended down in the form of a dove. So we're talking simile here. No one is thinking, oh, what a pretty little bird I see. Something is going on in that moment that, that all of the aware parties, whoever they are, immediately understand as the personification of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Greek word here for dove is just a generic word that would be used for any ceremonially clean bird. Um, You would literally use the exact same word if you were trying to talk about a pigeon. Uh, And so why is it translated dove here? Uh, Is that even a picture that Matthew is intending for his audience? And and, and the answer is yes, it is. He does mean dove. Uh, And it's because associating the spirit with a dove is just about the oldest of Old Testament ideas. Um, the, the way you would describe a bird flying around in Hebrew is the exact same way that the Spirit is described as hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2. And so in the oral law, you remember we were talking about that last week, the explanation of the Torah that the Pharisees just loved and clung to, and uh, it was an explanation of the Torah. And that's exactly how Genesis 1-2 is explained in the oral law, like a dove fluttering around. So this is a common picture in Jewish thought. It doesn't matter what word they would have used for, bird, uh, for the bird, uh, generic or otherwise. Um, describing the Spirit that way only has one kind of logical conclusion in a Jewish mind. Manifestation of the Spirit? Oh yeah, call it a dove. Shorthand. But the Spirit coming down is not actually the complicated part. 
because believe it or not, there's all kinds of historical arguments surrounding verses 16 and 17. Uh, Heresies have been declared around rightly understanding these two verses. And so in the 4th and 5th centuries, several uh, different ecumenical councils were called to kind of hammer out exactly what Christians do and do not believe about Jesus' divinity in relation to his humanity and then how the Trinity kind of functioned, uh, you know, functionally structured. Um, and, and I wish I had time to really, really dig into all that, but that's a multi-week lecture kind of deal, not a you know, single Sunday sermon. Here's the fast version. Several different erroneous teachings cropped up during the third and fourth century, uh, fourth, or excuse me, fourth and fifth century, uh, that all argued that Jesus uh, was a created being. That the, that teaching, the, got, the teaching that got the most traction in kind of that category of ideas was a heresy called Arianism. All right? um, but a couple of offshoots of Arianism, slightly modified versions, were called modal and dynamic monarchianism. And those are your fancy words for the week. You're welcome. Right? Um, you're, you're getting everything you paid for with your fancy words. Right, modal and dynamic monarchianism. Two different heresies, and both of them kind of play into these two verses. All right? Both of them are in play here. Uh, we'll start with modal, right? Because that's the quickest knot to, I think, untie. Uh, modal monarchianism typically goes by the shorter name modalism. All right? And modalism falsely teaches that there is only one God who presents himself in three forms, or three modes, hence modalism. All right? um, sometimes God reveals himself as the Father, and sometimes he reveals himself as the Son, and sometimes he reveals himself as the Spirit. And it was a genuine attempt in the 300s, uh, early, uh, late 300s, early 400s, to try to explain how God can be both one and three at the same time. That's a complicated thing to explain, and they were trying to explain it. Uh, but and so you can see what they were trying to go for. Uh, but, but what's the problem with that logic? Well, we see all three persons of the Godhead in this one scene, right? All three members of the Trinity are present here. The sun's in the water, and the Spirit's descending down, and the Father's speaking from heaven. And unless it's a schizophrenic moment for God, that's a problem for modalism. And to represent them fairly, modalism's, uh, modalists do claim to be able to explain texts like this away and by saying that you know, there's something fancier going on than just what we see on the page. Uh, but man, it's really, really hard to reconcile those ideas with what's clearly on the page. What we have here is an obvious example of the Father and the Spirit simultaneously celebrating the Son. And this text, verses 16 to 17, played a huge role in that argument a millennia and a half ago. But there's a second heresy that we've got to deal with in dynamic monarchianism. It's, it's also got a more approachable nickname. It's called adoptionism. Adoptionism. Adoptionism is the idea that Jesus, as a normal, created human being, was adopted into the Godhead. In other words, made divine. Why? Well, because either he really impressed God the Father with his teachings, or he really impressed God the Father with his obedience to the law, but the Father was impressed with Jesus and raised him up to be God alongside himself. That's adoptionism. And where modalists try to explain away verses 16 and 17, adoptionists run to it and actually claim it as their proof. Aha, this is, this is what the Bible is teaching. Um, they argue that the Spirit coming down and the Father speaking approval over the Son is the very moment that Jesus, in their minds, supposedly became God in the flesh. Now, there aren't any major groups that hold to the teaching of adoptionism today, uh, but it's on the fringe of several groups. And so adoptionism ideas are on the fringe of Mormonism in a lot of ways uh, and in a lot of Christianized New Age beliefs. So folks like Oprah and Richard Rohr kind of take this adoptionist view. Right? And so they teach that Jesus was a man who was given the spirit of the Christ, is what they would say. And hopefully you're already seeing a, a, you know, some problems with that idea. 
Uh, for starters, it assumes that a normal created being has the ability to impress God with their teaching and or obedience and can therefore earn their right into godhood. How's that going for you? You've you got to separate yourself from a lot of things to make that claim, right? It also completely ignores dozens of places in the Bible where we're told explicitly that Jesus' divine nature was eternally existent. Places like John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But as we've discovered today, ignoring all the things you don't like in the Bible about Jesus so you can present him in a way that's consistent with what you already believe is not exactly a, like a once-in-a-while problem for the church. It's not a one-off issue. And so what do we do? What do we do with the Father speaking from heaven, declaring that Jesus is his beloved Son with whom he is well-pleased? Well, every faithful commentator I looked at this week, and there were some unfaithful ones on the list, but every faithful commentator I looked at this week said the exact same thing. That this was a smashing together of two incredibly important Old Testament ideas. The first half is from Psalm 2, verse 7. Jeff is going to preach Psalm 2 here in a few weeks, and so I won't steal his thunder, but allow me to do his, do his prep work for him. Uh, psalm 2 was a song that was sung at the coronation of Israel's kings. Right? And that Even in that day, even in the days when it was happening, everybody already knew was pointing past the king that was currently ascending to the throne and on to a more eternal king that they were all longing for. All right? And so the second half of what God says in verse 17 comes from Isaiah 42.1. Behold my sufferings or my suffer, my servant, excuse me, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so that servant, as I already mentioned, is, is Isaiah's famous suffering servant. Not, and so what, what, what's happening here? Well, what we're seeing is an intentional blending together of the various promises God gave to his people. The one who will rule over them forever as the, the good and righteous holy king is the exact same one who will rescue them by his own suffering on their behalf. Those two thoughts were not, were not together in Jewish ideas in, in Matthew's day. And Matthew's slamming them together. Uh, God is speaking that together. Church, what we're looking at in this moment is not the Son of God suddenly becoming the Messiah. He, that, was what he was, uh, that was what he was always meant to do. It was his, his eternal purpose. No, what we're witnessing in Matthew 3 is his coronation. A divine commissioning of the new king. You know what else they did in Israel in addition to singing Psalm 2 when they raised a new king to the throne? They would anoint him. They poured oil over his head as a sign of the mandate and the Spirit of God resting upon him. Those of you who cared to pay attention to King Charles's coronation several months ago, same, same thing happened at, at one point in the process. They made him strip down behind a screen and they poured oil all over him. He was anointed so Jesus, as the Messiah, the anointed one, in his baptism and in the descent of the Spirit upon him and in the delightful celebration of the Father, we get to see Jesus actually being declared king. Declared king. I found one commentator, a guy named John MacArthur, especially helpful this week. He had this to say. It says, one cannot fail to be aware that in these few verses, Matthew reports that the three central and absolutely critical aspects of Jesus' coronation as King of Kings. The baptism of the Son, the anointing of the Spirit, and the confirmation of the Father. As clearly as in any passage in Scripture, we see here the revelation and the working of the Trinity. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father. Because He is no earthly king, and His is no earthly kingdom, 
No men crowned him, only God, while men watched. So, so what do we do with this stuff, huh? What do we do with this stuff? How, how can we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, man, it's an amazing day to change that. It's a great day for that. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all separated relationally from God and that we are all owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through the grace of Christ. And so, so, so how does he do that? The Father sent the Son. But not as some plan B. This was planned from before the foundation of the world, we're told by the Bible. The eternal Son of God, eternal Son of God, put on flesh and dwelled among us. He lived among his people. He lived sinlessly, and I mean actually sinlessly, moral perfection and mediatorial perfection. He nailed it all. And because of his perfect righteousness and obedience, he is able to ransom those who are separated from God, willing to do for them what they can never, ever dream of doing for themselves. The sinless and now anointed Savior and King has righteousness and obedience to spare. And he joyfully binds himself to his unrighteous and disobedient people. He lived sinlessly. He died sacrificially in our place. And he was raised again victoriously. He has defeated sin and death. And he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that this morning. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song that that's a time that we set aside to give people space to kind of translate that head knowledge into something better than that. Put action to that response. And let's talk after we're done. But what about those of us who are here who are already followers of Jesus? How, how can we respond? The same way we do every single week, by repenting of sin and by leaning into what, uh, God, what this reveals about God in our, in our text. And I think, I think it's important to see that our king does not merely hold that title by right alone. If that's all he had, it would be enough. That's not all he has. He also holds the title of king by his otherworldly loving action. And so what should our response and our posture before him be but a depth of humility before him and an endless pursuit of personal holiness before him and a faithful trust that he will fulfill all of the things that he's promised to fulfill? Not because those things are required for us to to maintain His good graces and stay within relationship, but because He has already done for us far beyond what we could ever do for ourselves. Our King is good. Our King is good. He is mighty to save and forever deserving of our praise. And we want to give you an opportunity to do exactly that this morning. To turn around and praise Him. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by, um, you know, maybe it's time to formally join our church family. You've been here for a while and it's time to actually do something about that. Take the next step. Maybe you need to finally be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. You've been following Jesus for a while, but you've never actually done one of the things he told his people to do. And so we, we want to work with you on, on figuring out if that's the right step for you. Maybe. Maybe God's been calling you to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, somewhere uh, it's a little difficult, and, and it's time to make that calling public. We'd love to help you figure out what those next steps are. That's a good week for me. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Matthew. Thank you that 
You sent your son to not just be a king, but the king who reconciles and the king who redeems and the king who steps into the need and handles the problem on our behalf. Thank you for sending your son to be the king who would identify with his people's sin and then pay the payment required for that sin and then remove that sin and unite us forever to himself. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Call men and women into your kingdom today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.